This podcast discusses sensitive topics that may contain graphic depictions of violence, substance use, self-harm, explicit language, and other content that some listeners may find disturbing or triggering. Listener discretion is advised. And he looked me directly in the eyes and he said, No, you can't just give up. You have to be stronger than that. Welcome to the Survivor Story Podcast. You are invited to open your hearts and ears to the powerful stories of others. Here, you are no longer alone. You hear your experience, your strength, your hope in the words of others. Join us on this journey as we conquer our past, live in the present, and dream for our future. Together we choose our story. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Survivor Story Podcast. My name is Kevin Colbert, and we are here with episode nine of the Survivor Story with Kylie Lewis sharing her story of bravery, of triumph, of going from self-editing to self publishing. I am so excited for you all to listen to this one, to hear Kylie's story. Um, There's a lot of cool, interesting things about Kylie's story that you will get to hear, you'll get to learn. Um, Kylie is doing so much as far as being a big inspiration to others and helping others find their way by really sharing her story here and all her other platforms. Um, she also has a podcast that I think you should go check out right after you listen to this one <laughs> called Coming Clean with Kylie Lewis. Um, she's preparing a manuscript. She's got a blog. She's doing different workshops on, I think her most recent one was kind of the healing power of dance um so she's doing a lot she's sharing a lot she has a lot of wisdom a lot of inspiration i i feel so re-inspired about this podcast and this experience of sharing your story and how powerful that sharing our story can be Time and time again when I do these, I really am just so left in awe in the whole experience and notice, I notice myself practicing more of what I am speaking of telling those who are close to me what's going on in my internal experience. I think one of the most important things for our mental and emotional well-being is letting others in on our true experience, not hiding from that. So it's so important, I think, if you have a little bit of uncertainty to find someone to be a little bit vulnerable with. Find someone to share really what's on your heart. No matter if you feel shame or if you feel like it's wrong or it's not that big of a deal, the amount of times we minimize what's going on for ourselves. It holds us back so much. 
And that it's okay for even what we may think of as a small experience. It's okay for that to have a big effect on us. It's not wrong. And so before I get all preachy, I just want to invite you to be a part of this in some way, whether it's sharing your story on here, whether it's connecting with us on Instagram, whether it's sharing your heart to someone who is trustworthy, someone you feel you can be vulnerable with. Join us on this journey of healing through sharing our story. Because we are not meant to do this alone. So get comfortable, find a nice cozy spot, and here we go with Kylie's story. A good friend of mine was a previous guest on this podcast, and when I asked her to share any advice she may have for me, she suggested that I refrain from self-editing throughout this process. That suggestion hit me pretty hard, because if there's any theme I've felt throughout my entire life, it is probably that of self-editing. So I'll try my best to be vulnerable here. From what I know, it all started at a very young age. I remember always being afraid of disappointing my parents, and specifically my mother. Because she wasn't very vocal, my mom relied heavily on facial expressions to convey how she was feeling. She wore her feelings on her face, and especially in her eyes. I know that she had no ill intentions. She was just a young mom, and she was simply using the only communication tools that she had. And one disappointed look from my mom could send me into a whirlwind of emotions. It still can to this day. It's been said that when I was a baby, my mom could shoot me a look of concern and instantly silent tears would fill my eyes. She and I were very close. I felt that our energies were entangled, as if there was an invisible umbilical cord still connected to my belly. Every decision I made was first run through a what-would-mommy-think filter. When my parents divorced... I had many more of these decisions to make. Unlike many divorces, our parents allowed my sister and I to choose where we wanted to spend our time. Although their divorce was smooth and relatively pleasant for us, it became incredibly difficult for me to choose where I wanted to go. I always felt like I was going to let someone down. At the age of six, this was a lot of pressure for me. It felt as though no matter what I did, and no matter where I went, I was always disappointing someone. Somewhere along the line, I was also trying to be a kid and a human. I was in such a crucial developmental stage that was also riddled with confusion and instability. I had moved multiple times and endured the massive change that is the breaking of a family unit. And without even knowing it, I was searching for an escape. I can't remember the first time it came up, but someone, either my older sister or a friend, introduced me to the concept of sexuality. Around this time, I remember reading articles about sex in Cosmopolitan magazine and pretending that I had a boyfriend. I don't know if my curiosity was premature based on my external influences 
but I now know that this type of exploration is extremely common for young girls around this age. It wasn't long before I shared this curiosity with girlfriends, and I guess I never really thought about what they would think. I mean, I was seven. I just brought it up. They too were curious and intrigued about their own sexuality. I don't remember specific conversations or the actual timeline of anything, but I do know that our curiosity eventually turned into experimentation. By the way, this is where I considered self-editing because I still feel shame. But if I didn't share this part of my story, I would be doing a disservice to myself and to anyone that's listening. This is the truth. For me, this is vulnerability. I'm not sure how much time passed or how often I actually partook in this behavior, but eventually this innocent curiosity became something much different in my mind. My parents didn't talk much of sexuality, and if they did, it was to shame it or scare me away from it in some way. I remember my mom saying, that's disgusting, when referring to something sex-related on an episode of Oprah. It didn't matter the details. I was young, so I just understood that my mom perceived sexuality as disgusting. Therefore, I must be disgusting. My dad also blocked MTV on our television because it had things we shouldn't see. So with this information, I figured that if they knew the truth, both of my parents would not only become extremely disappointed in me, they might disown me. I know now that they were just doing their best, and their best was great, but it just happened to plant some seeds within me that grew over time. For nearly a decade, I told no one of my secret except for my journal, and I guarded that journal with my life. I even struggled for a while with digestive issues because by holding on to this secret, I was creating so much tension within my belly, I wouldn't allow myself to go to the bathroom. When we're young, we don't have the communication or coping skills necessary to properly handle our more intense emotions. So we hold them inside, we make ourselves sick, we get poor grades at school, or we act out in other ways simply because we are attempting to deal with our own inner turmoil. After years of holding this secret inside, it became my identity. I had hardwired my brain to believe that I was shameful, disgusting, and downright bad. I had very little self-esteem and equal self-worth. I was toxic inside, eating away at my own well-being one thought at a time. I couldn't stop beating myself up mentally, and this affected every area of my life. I was 19 when I tried Adderall for the first time. It was like magic. I felt happy for once. I wasn't worried about being found out, and I wasn't drowning in my own shame. The Adderall then led to cocaine and other drugs. I would take something like cocaine, Adderall, or other stimulants, and then I would need something else to come back down. My life was like a roller coaster, climbing to the highest peak and crashing down hard. One moment I was jittery and wired, and then next I was popping a Xanax or a Vicodin just to slow down. Really, I was reaching for anything that could help me escape the inner torment I was putting my poor seven-year-old self through every single day, telling her how disgusting she was. 
She couldn't take the pain anymore. And neither could I. So we chose to numb. At 23, my nervous system was shot, and I had no idea who I was. All I knew was that I was miserable and hated being in my own skin. Shame is a leech. It will suck every last bit of your energy. I was lost and confused, looking for purpose and healing. So I did what anyone else would do in their depths of despair. I auditioned for a reality television show called The Bachelor, and I got on. This may seem like an odd twist to the story, but I chose to include this part because it played an important role in my healing. The role it played was bringing me to my breaking point. I went on this show as a seven-year-old girl disguised as a 23-year-old. I was desperate for love, affection, approval, and freedom. It's wild to think back now because I remember being in LA for more, my more intensive interviews with the producers. And they asked me if there's anything I could share with them that I've never shared with anyone else. I shared this story. It was as though I was literally bursting at the seams and this needed to come out. I still cringe when I think about the vulnerability I chose to expose in front of these strangers that didn't give a shit about my heart. But it happened, and it's why the next part stung so badly. It's why this experience eventually brought me to my knees and broke me apart. I was sent home from the show after just one night. I planned to be there for 10 weeks, but I wasn't good enough to get even one rose. I failed in a big way. I felt so stupid, so exposed, so small. I was ashamed of myself. How could I be so naive? When I returned home from filming, I was shattered. I was enduring the biggest expectation hangover I could have ever imagined. I was angry and embarrassed, and all of my insecurities came rushing to the surface all at once. I let this experience drive me further into my addictions at first and nearly killed myself along the way. I was mixing drugs, drinking and driving, and barely eating enough to get by. I didn't know what to do with the years of emotional debt I had accumulated. It was all too much to handle. It got to the point that I wanted to give up. I was exhausted and empty, and I had nothing left to give. No one really knew what I was going through because I hid it so well. I even tricked myself into thinking I was fine. So how would anyone else see past the show I was putting on? I didn't realize I needed help. And even if I did, I would have no idea what it would look like. Luckily, in perfect timing, help entered my life. This help arrived in the form of a guy. A guy I had known for years, but not very well. It was summer and we happened to run into each other at a local bar on a busy Saturday night. We spent the evening talking about the cosmos, health, and the meaning of life, while everyone else around us got drunk. Neither of us were drinking. We were so consumed by the conversation. 
Being around him was like taking a breath of fresh air. I knew something was there, but I wasn't ready to open myself up to it. I was still clinging to my suffering and to my destructive life. Somehow, I knew that if I were to let him in, I would have to release whatever I was holding on to. Looking back now, it's so clear to me when I finally made the decision to surrender and trust. I had a day off of work, and I was spending it in my bed with my curtains shut and my TV on. I was still bartending most nights, and I continued all of my self-destructing habits. Dalton and I had been spending quite a bit of time together, and he stopped by that day to hang out for a little while. When he arrived, I was curled up under the blankets, silently crying. He asked what was wrong, and I responded, I can't do this anymore. He then curiously said, what can't you do anymore? I said, life, I don't want to live anymore. And I cried harder. What happened next set the tone for our entire relationship. And really, it changed the course of my entire life from that point forward. Dalton stood up from where he had been sitting on the edge of my bed And he looked me directly in the eyes and he said, no, you can't just give up. You have to be stronger than that. His voice didn't waver and neither did his eye contact. In that moment, I felt conviction and strength emanating from him like a wave that traveled toward me and wrapped me up in love. But this was a different type of love than I had ever experienced before. In the presence of my desperation and weakness, he didn't contract and become weak himself. He didn't cower, nor did he crouch down and coddle me in my pain. He stood tall and strong, and he spoke truth without fear of how I might respond. He demanded more of me. His presence demanded that I rise and not stay small. And although his truth pierced my heart, and penetrated my soul like a lightning bolt, he also seemed surprisingly unattached. He wasn't begging nor trying to convince me. He was simply stating what was real and leaving it there for me to accept or refuse. I had received so much love and affection in my life, but in that moment, I didn't need a hug. I needed someone to force me to face myself. And that's exactly what he did. For the first time in a while, I felt safe. It's not even that I felt safe because now he could take care of me. But instead, I knew he would remind me how to take care of myself. As he shined his light of strength, I was given a glimpse of my own. And with that, I felt hope. With that, I felt strong. That night, Dalton showed me his true colors, his true strength, and his true love. I finally felt that it was time. It was time to release everything I thought I knew. It was time to come clean of my past. It was time to stop self-destructing. It was time to surrender into love.
So that's what I did. The next few months that followed consisted of me quitting my job, selling my car, and quitting basically any negative habit that I was using as a crutch. This included binge drinking, binge eating, Vicodin, Adderall, Xanax, Celexa, Phentermine, shopping, and makeup. You can imagine how chippy I was. I had no clue what I was doing, but for some reason, I felt like I could set the pressure on his shoulders and work on fixing myself. He drove me everywhere that I needed to go, bought me groceries, and was there as a shoulder to cry on. And boy, did I use his shoulder to cry on. We laugh about it now, but I was an absolute disaster then. When you rely for so long on substances or certain stimulus to create happiness for you, you aren't able to do much on your own when you try. The skeleton I was left with felt like torture. I couldn't stand to actually be with myself. Maybe this sounds strange or a bit extreme, but imagine letting go of everything external that you look to for comfort. Everything. What are you left with? It's pretty terrifying. I was so fixated on the negative. On my worst days, I was not able to see the light. On these days, Dalton inspired strength in me that I never knew I had. He called me out on my bullshit. I was in this desperate, poor me phase. My ego wanted Dalton to comfort me and tell me everything was going to be all right. Then leave me alone to cry and scream like a child. But that's not at all what I was met with. Instead, he looked at me with unwavering honesty and demanded strength for me over and over again. He would hold my face in his hands, look me dead in the eyes and say, listen, you are a badass, now act like one. Most of the time, I would laugh and shake my head, then continue to cry harder. I didn't want to feel good about myself. I didn't want to believe that I was supposed to be somebody. I wanted everyone to leave me alone and for no one to care about a single thing I was doing with my life. I didn't want to be important because I didn't feel worthy of importance. Somehow, his consistent pep talks gave me the permission to call on strength that I hadn't before. I secretly knew I had it in me, as I think we all do, but I was holding myself back. I was telling myself this story that was making it impossible for me to be all I could be. I was playing a broken record in my head of how unworthy I was, how incapable I was, and Dalton shattered all of that by helping me to realize the mental gymnastics I had been torturing myself with for years. Most mornings began with a meltdown. Whether we were home, at a craft store, in the car, or out at a coffee shop, it happened. He would come sit next to me and tell me all the things I had going for me in my life. He would ask me to close my eyes and to imagine the life that I wanted to create. He encouraged me to push through and explained that if I just continued forward, I would get stronger. And he was right. This happened every single day for almost six months. I don't know how he did it. I don't know how he endured watching me act that way for so many days. And more importantly, how he stayed so incredibly dedicated to helping me fix myself. 
What I do know is how absolutely necessary this honest approach was for my healing process. I couldn't have gotten stronger without someone demanding it from me. I wish I could tell you about the big, enlightening, aha moment that brought me back to life. But the truth is, there wasn't just one. There were hundreds, maybe even thousands of moments like this once I consciously began my journey. Every day that passed felt like things were getting worse. I couldn't imagine a better life for myself. I literally couldn't see it happening. And if I couldn't picture it, how in the world was I going to get there? That's when I started doing something that greatly contributed to my growth and continues to do so today. I began listening to podcasts. I wasn't just listening to any station. I was specifically choosing to listen to people and conversations that I knew could benefit me in some way. TED Radio Hour and the School of Greatness introduced me to a world of stories similar to the one I'm telling you now. Stories of transformation, stories of triumph, real-life stories belonging to real people. There's something tremendously moving about hearing someone's true story. I decided to pack my day with these inspiring episodes. Not only did these success stories inspire me in all aspects of the word, but listening to someone else's struggles helped me to cope with my own. The more I learned about the truth of others and how they overcame so many hardships in their life, far more extreme than I, the less I felt sorry for myself. When I began to put trust into the process of it all and realize this process would take time, I could allow myself to relax even just the slightest bit. I didn't give up and let life take the reins. I simply realized that as long as I was putting in the work, that eventually I would see progress. I felt a small sense of hope. I began moving my body just to feel it moving. I would take deep breaths and feel my lungs and diaphragm expand. I started to realize my existence and how miraculous it truly is. I've always been able to see the beauty in others and to love them regardless of their flaws. But this was the first time I could use that same pair of eyes to look at myself. I started my mornings with speeches by Eric Thomas, Muhammad Ali, Tony Robbins, Joe Rogan, Les Brown, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Alan Watts, Eckhart Tolle, Jim Carrey, Will Smith, Lewis Howes, Sam Harris, Graham Hancock, Aubrey Marcus, and more. Our brains can only actually focus on one thing at a time. So I forced mine to focus on thoughts of strength, courage, honesty, and truth. I wasn't going to leave my thoughts up to chance. I couldn't afford to. When summer came, I walked everywhere. I walked to the grocery store, the coffee shop, the gym, you name it. I used this time to listen to more speeches, more interviews, more facts and stories of success. Learning became my drug, and I couldn't have been more happy about it. My inner dialogue began to shift. For with every new piece of information I acquired, the better I could live. I began to pour myself into my art and painted hundreds of paintings over the course of two years. Eventually, I started to teach painting classes, 
And although I was terrified, having no idea what I was really doing, I ended up creating quite a steady income and taught hundreds of classes with thousands of painters over the last five years. In the last couple of years, these painting classes have evolved into women's workshops and retreats where I facilitate unique healing experiences infused with tools that have helped me. Fast forward to now, I am the happiest and fullest I have ever been. I am still with that guy that helped me save my own life six years ago, and I am about to publish my first book. I still have remnants of shame, guilt, and insecurity that show up almost daily, but they carry less weight. I have survived the thick of my own self-hate, but I also know that the journey is never over. This is why I have chosen to fall in love with all of it. The pain, the discomfort, the challenging conversations, the growing pains, the beauty, the love, and everything in between. I am incredibly grateful for every piece of my journey because it has brought me to where I am today. I am stronger because I know what weakness feels like. And I'm confident because of what I've proved to myself I can do. I am deeply empathetic because I know what pain feels like. And this helps me open my heart even further each day. If there's one thing I have learned on this path of healing, it is that I deserve to feel good. And only I can choose this for myself in every breath, every moment, every single day. Thank you so much for listening to Kylie's story of her journey from going from self-editing to self-publishing. Before we move on to the Q&A, you know what I'm going to tell you. Come sh give us a shout out. Tell us what's up. Give us comment, feedback. Interact with us on our Instagram, our website, um, even our Facebook page. You can check us out um, at the Survivor Story on Instagram, the Survivor Story podcast is our website www.thesurvivorstorypodcast.com and then our facebook just search up the survivor story podcast and you should find us um be a part of the community connect in um, on the website right we got journal articles we got more information about the podcast the books and things that just add a little bit more depth to um, our guests. So if you want a little bit more information, you want to dive a little bit deeper, check out that. And we also have our prompt for the month, um, which got put a little bit behind, but we are still talking about um, worst and best dating stories. So that will be coming out soon. You have a little bit more time to submit your stories. And um, with all that being said, let's move right into the Q&A. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast and sharing your story. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I was, there's so many things that stood out during your story, um, but it really seemed like there was a theme of your whole life of really like self-editing, as you said, and from moments of kind of reading into your 
mom's facial expressions to ways you should be in society. And um, one thing that kind of struck out to me was, and I actually really dislike this word, but um, the word sensitive in a sense of like picking up and noticing situations. I wonder, do you resonate with the word sensitive? And I can tell you why. I don't necessarily <laughs> resonate with it, but um, to me, it always seems like a way that my outside experiences were minimized. And I wonder, do you feel like you had a natural ability to, I guess, really pick up on the world? Because you said like almost from an early, early age, you were able to pick up on your mom's um, facial expressions. And I wonder if your mom just had like really intense facial expressions, or if you just had like a natural sensitivity to reading your environment, if you feel like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of things come up for me when you ask this question, because Oftentimes when I hear other people say that they were a sensitive child or that they are a sensitive person, I really think the more I learn about people and the, learn, the more I learn about myself, I think that we're all sensitive, mm. meaning we're all able to pick up on mm. these things because it's like hardwired in us, you know, yeah. um, biologically to be able to recognize facial expressions and make sense of them mm. and use them to our um, advantage if we choose to, you know, just taking it all in as information. So I don't like to, um, I guess when I think about it, even myself saying, oh, I was a sensitive child, it's like every child is sensitive. Mm. Every child is taking in so much information and, and forming their view of the world with that information. Um, so, but yeah, go ahead. I was just saying so good. You, you said it way more uh, eloquently than, than I did. And that's kind of um, how I feel and kind of resonate with as well is that like every child is first language in order to survive and assess the situation is trying to read the environment, which includes like facial expressions and all that and that i think the idea that we are all hardwired to be kind of sensitive to our environment is very um just very true right mm -hmm. that we we all are picking up on what's going on and and uh, trying to figure out if we are safe if we are going to get our needs met um exactly. i used to i used to have this teacher who, um, and when you're talking about your mom, it made me think of this teacher in second grade who she could say anything and it wouldn't be that scary, but she would have this, like she had these glasses that she would wear and I wish I could see you, but she would like lean her face forward and the glasses <laughs> would just very slightly like slip down her nose. So it's like her <laughs> eyes and her glasses are like looking right at you. And it was just the most chilling, like scary look. And like, no matter what she said, like you might like still like, you know, be talking in class or whatever. But then once she gave you that look, like everyone in the class would just, um, you know, sadly yes. kind of, like tighten up and, you know, get into shape or whatever. But um, 
Yes. Um, yes. Like as you say <laughs> that, I see my mom's eyes. And yeah. I think that like I think that because my mom wasn't um comfortable verbalizing her feelings, she relied really heavily on those facial expressions, mm-hmm. which mm. I'm not comparing that to um you know, verbalizing your feelings because I'm sure a lot of people were were talked to in certain ways that really affected them. Yeah. Um, but I just personally, this was my experience, and I've like felt like my mother's eyes could pierce my soul when she look at me, you know. And mm-hmm. when I said that, still affects me to this day. Mm-hmm. I say it because um, my mom, you know, even now that I'm almost thirty years old. If she looks at me a certain way, I still react instantly as that seven-year-old or as that five-year-old. I have to then calm myself and tell myself, you know, it's okay. You are safe. Like, you're not going to lose your mom's love or anyone's love. I have to help my inner child um, Mm. sort through that experience as it's happening now. Yeah, I I resonate with that. I also will have, like, those experiences that, like, I'll see – someone else looking at me with like a disappointment and I'll also have to like remind myself like, Oh, this person's not my mom or not my dad. Right. Like that. And, and, you know, I'm not contingent on this person's like love or approval in a sense. Mm. Um, and kind of reminding that like inner child part of myself that like, kind of like, I got you. (laughs) Yeah. You know? Um, Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I was wondering, um, during this process, you said that um, we both know Sheila and Sheila kind of told you one one piece of advice is to not self-edit. And I think of so many different reasons and, you know, there's so many different reasons why I choose to self-edit or like the things that come into my head, like, oh, I need to self-edit here. I was wondering when you're doing this process, um, what were some of the reasons that came up to uh, self-edit? Oh, (laughs) what a great question. Quite a penetrating question as well. Hmm. Um, Yeah, I think think the one thing that always comes up still – um, and it should come to, or uh, it should come as no surprise after listening to my story. But I have this fear that my mom will hear this and she'll mm-hmm. be, she'll be, I don't even know the word. Like it, it's not even something I could pinpoint. It's like I just still have that inner child fear of mm-hmm. being found out or being seen. And full disclosure, I've actually, um, had an experience where I told my mom, uh, my deepest, darkest secret. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had held it in for 18 years. So by the time I told her, it was kind of like, um, the damage had already been done. Mm-hmm. Um, but it definitely helped my healing process to tell her and it had nothing to do with her reaction because mm-hmm. that wasn't exactly, it's never what you want it to be. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that my nervous system is still so hardwired to uh, hide and protect and yeah. to keep that secret that is already out. 
but my nervous system doesn't realize that. So when I go mm-hmm. to do a podcast or um, even writing my book, it's kind of like I'm constantly running it through that filter that I mentioned, like what would mommy think, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that. Um, and so the flip side of that, um, and I don't know if it was just Sheila's words of saying, um, don't self-edit, but what were some of the reasons, I guess, that you chose to not self-edit? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love that you asked this because I think that because, and I think many people could probably relate to this in different types of ways, but when you feel pain for so many years and when you feel restricted and constricted, for so many years, then it becomes like your life's purpose, if there is such a thing, to free yourself Mm. from that. So when I look at this opportunity to not self-edit, and when I looked at the opportunity to share my story on my own podcast and to be vulnerable in the face of a real human being sitting in front of me, I feel like I'm allergic to self-editing now, um, meaning I don't want to go backwards. I don't ever want to feel the way that I felt for most of my life where I felt trapped and alone and hiding in a closet. Like I need to be free, yet I'm constantly having to fight against my nervous system that tells me to stay closed and and in hiding. So... Mm. When I look at the opportunity to not self-edit, I run at it and I try to embrace it because that is my path to freedom. And I have to choose that every single day. Hmm. I really like that and can say <laughs> resonate with that too. It's like kind of like the the idea or the feeling of going back and self-editing is actually worse than the feeling of um, releasing and speaking the things that I'm nervous or scared about. Yeah. Right. And it's the idea that like, I don't want to go back to that person, although I can still have compassion and love for the person I was then it's the idea that like, it was really painful and there's this new course of freedom that I'm on and I don't want to necessarily chain myself up. Um, like I did in the past. Exactly. Um, You get it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was interested in, were there moments or people in your childhood that you um, looked up to or who made a um, just a big influence positively in your life? Um, and if so, how did they influence you or how did you navigate um, not having that? Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's so odd how you can hold, you know, I actually heard this recently that consciousness is the ability to hold two conflicting ideas in your mind at the same time. And when you ask me that question, I feel that both my mom and my dad were huge positive influences for me because they loved me so much. Yeah. So I, I had I had positivity and I had love and Mm -hmm. they both and still to this day 
my mom is a cancer nurse and she pours herself into her job. And my dad is known to be the nicest man on the planet who would do anything for anyone. So they both showed me what it looked like to be a loving, generous, kind human being. And um, I'm really grateful for that. Mm. That's super beautiful because I think quite often we can like live in this world of black and white or good or bad and um, not really look at things as like hold the whole story of certain things, right? That like that our parents could be really good role models and really teach us some real positive things, but then also have things that, um, did negatively affect us and it's it's okay to have both of them right it's not either or mm-hmm. so i really appreciate that um that balance i guess you're able to hold between that yeah. um one thing that stuck out to me when <clears throat> when you were talking about um you're using drugs and reach you're like I was reaching for anything. Um, are you familiar with Gabor Mate? Yeah. Yeah. So he has this um, statement, this video that says, um, not why the addiction, why the pain. Mm. And um, you said you're, I think you're, you said you were reaching for anything to um, deal with that inner turmoil in yeah. a sense. And um, I wondered what, what shifted um i was wondering if maybe drugs stopped working for you of taking away that inner inner turmoil or maybe even just started creating some more um what shifted in your life to kind of say this isn't working for um covering up or taking away the pain or the inner turmoil Mm. man um Yeah, it's it's really interesting to think about that because like the way drugs are designed, like in one way they never stop working, right? Cuz they'll mm-hmm. always play on your brain chemistry in mm-hmm. a temporarily favorable way, which is why they become so addictive. Mm-hmm. Um but I think what happened was I I was aware enough to realize that um, I didn't like the path that I was going down. And it's almost like I could visualize like where it was going to lead me and where it was leading me was, was not good. And eventually I would have died either a slow, painful death or, you know, getting in a car accident or something. And, Mm -hmm. um, it's crazy to say, and I love that we're doing this conversation right now because it's like causing me to realize things I never would have realized before. Um, but I really think that I became so ashamed of myself for doing these drugs and from mm-hmm. running from myself that I literally couldn't handle the weight of the shame of doing what I was doing to myself. So in a sense, my shame was my greatest gift 
because it was what brought me ultimately to my knees to say, I can't do this anymore. Mm, so interesting. Uh, it reminds me of this next thing of you saying I was clinging to my destructive life. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, when we f first start doing drugs, it's not this conscious intention of clinging to a destructive life. Um, but then as we kind of go through it, there's a little bit of holding on to that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was wondering, I like, were you aware that things were destructive or you're having a destructive life while you're going through it? Or also like what point, if you did become aware, what point did you kind of become aware of what was coming up for you? Mm -hmm. um, that even like, right, started that shame or like, when did you start feeling shame about what was going on? Yeah, that is a really great question because I, when I tell this story or even when I think about it, I often glaze over the fact that um, I had a lot of fun, like, mm -hmm. For doing, sure. <laughs> you know, like, like you said, it starts as, it starts as fun. Like I was young and I was um, just exploring and I was partying and then, you know, doing, going on The Bachelor and diving into materialism and, you know, the ego being amplified. It was, it was fun on that ego type level and um doing drugs and things like that like that was all just like amplifying that ride that roller coaster ride and like you know just building momentum so it was fun for a while but to answer your question um i think when it started to i think when when my when, when I explained, right, that I would, I would have really high highs and then mm -hmm. really low lows because um, I'd have to, like, bring myself down after I would go for, like, a 12-hour shift of bartending and then partying, I would come home at, like, 5 or 6 in the morning and I would just lay there and I was so amped up and I was so wired that mm -hmm. I would just, like, sob and then I would take something to help me just to fall asleep. So I think when I started to realize that the the um, those valleys were so low, like the highs weren't worth it anymore because mm. I was I was I like you said I was clinging. I was clinging not only to my destructive life, but I was clinging to it because the highs were so high. It felt great, but mm. when I realized like oh my gosh, when I come down from this stuff, I feel so empty and so low. Like, mm -hmm. is it really worth it to wake up the next morning and pop another pill? And I obviously had to do that probably 50 to 100 days in a row to yeah. be like, okay, it's not worth it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it can be so confusing because all we are is, not all we are, but all we consciously are, you know, when we're not fully aware, it's just, we're just playing on brain chemistry. So if you're happy in that moment, then you're like, oh, this is good. This is great. I feel awesome. When you see the other side of the coin, then you're like, wait, I need to remember what mm -hmm. this feels like to come down. And honestly, I think there were a couple nights where <clears throat> I realized that my physical body was 
um, taking a toll because I wasn't eating. Um, I was running on the treadmill a lot. I wasn't sleeping well. And I was obviously drinking and, and doing other drugs that were harming my physical body that I was like, I am 23 years old and I feel like I'm 80. Like this is not okay. Mm. Yeah. It just made me think of um, how much like our physical body has to go through a toll in order for us to finally be like, oh, like this is too much. And it makes me almost think of um, a little bit how we can do that to ourselves emotionally as well, like go through that emotional toll and really like have that inner dialogue of beating ourselves up. And it takes 50 to 100 days in a row or like 10 years or whatever um, of doing that in a row to finally being like, Oh, like this isn't working and I need to shift or change something and how um, in a way, right. A lot of times we use drugs to kind of numb, right. Numb our inner dialogue or whatever's going out, whatever's going on um, just to numb it out and how it can almost mimic um, that type of abuse on ourself. Um, in a way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I thought one of the most interesting things you said on this podcast was bachelor played a role, a real role to my healing. Yeah. Um, it's just, <laughs> just such a unique, I think, thing to say. Um, and I also um, really liked how you said it was like, I, I have my seven-year-old self on there disguised as a 23-year-old. Um mm-hmm. And I was wondering, what was the, I guess, the most difficult part of not receiving a rose that first week? You know, I was wondering, in my head, I was picturing myself as you and like coming home after telling people I was going to be on The Bachelor and it was just one week. And to me, it'd be the hardest thing would be telling friends and family. Um, But I didn't know if... Maybe it was the rejection piece or if you had these expectations. Um, I, I just wondered what what was kind of the, the place that was the most difficult in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was very layered. I think it's a little bit of what you said. Um, actually, a lot, a lot of what you said when I had to tell my parents and my friends and family because you know, it it was like, oh, this is the biggest thing that's ever happened to us. Like, it's as Mm -hmm. if we were all going on the show together. Yeah. And there was a huge buildup. I mean, it was months of uh, going back and forth and interviews and and stuff like that. So it was a lot of expectation that was um, not only weighing on me, but I felt was weighing on everyone's shoulders. So I definitely felt like I let I mean, I, I felt like I let my hometown down, you know, like Mm -hmm. it was, um, I'm sure I amplified it in my own mind, but (laughs) it, it was a lot to, to take on and to process in such a short period of time. But in addition to that, I think I, um, I didn't mention this part, but this also played a huge role. And that was that, um, at the rose ceremony when we're filming, I thought he said uh, my name for a rose. So oh, no. I walked up oh, no. excitedly. 
yeah, yeah. Oh no, is right. Um, and he didn't say my name. He said someone else's name. And, uh, I don't even remember fully that happening because it was like so devastatingly embarrassing. Yeah. Um, and that just, that fueled my, my fear of my seven-year-old self, like being seen. Not only did I not get a rose, but I had now what they say is like one of the top five most embarrassing moments of the show's history in like 30 years. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, you know, having that, having that moment and then minutes after they shuffle you out and they interview you basically until you cry. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they put you on an airplane. Like it was, it was traumatic um, mm-hmm. to say the least. And I think that the reason I say that it's a part of, it, it played a role in my healing and a huge role in my healing is because it was the perfect storm for me. Yeah. It was, it was the perfect recipe for, um, bringing me to my breaking point and, um, really causing like this huge ego death, you know, like yeah. it, it, I couldn't hold on to anything any longer. Mm. Yeah. I just feel so, so much compassion for that story. I mean, I, you know, I've like, I don't know if you ever had to like walk up and like receive an award or like graduation, but like, I feel like everyone's biggest fear is like tripping in a sense. Yeah. And you basically did that. And I'm just like, Oh my gosh, like sweet. Like I can just feel like that inner child part of me and just like, Oh, like you deserve so much comfort and love. I'm so so sorry. (laughs) Thank you. Um, And I had a chills go through me when you started talking about your experience with Dalton. And especially to the moment when he said, no, you just can't give up like that. Yeah. And it made me think of how important it is to have people in our life who meet us where we are, but also believe and have faith in something bigger and higher for us. And, you know, I also heard him say, like, I'm not giving up on you. I'm not disappointed. I'm still going to be here for you through everything you're going through. I was wondering where, where do you think you would be without Dalton? (laughs) Oh, you know, I was just crying in tears of joy, like two nights ago, literally saying those words, like, (laughs) I don't know where I would be without you Mm. to him. Um, Because I, I honestly don't. And knowing that and saying that and truly feeling that, has me feel so much trust for my life and Mm. for everyone's life Mm. just because like it couldn't have gone a different way. Like this is, this was my destiny. This was perfectly placed everything. And what you said, like that, that importance of having someone not only like meet you where you are, you know, and love you and comfort you, but to see something in you that maybe you you're ignoring in yourself, because I truly believe we all see it in ourselves. I think mm-hmm. that light is within all of us. Like we all know that we are a badass and that we are, <laughs> you know, like we all know. I agree, yeah. But we don't want to realize it and we don't 
we oftentimes just don't have the courage to actualize it. Yeah. And he became this, this driving force for my healing. And, um, I, I just have never met anybody like him before. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how to explain it. Um, As, even she will tell this, you. I'm already like, I got questions for Dalton over here. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> I do too. Every day. <laughs> Um, yeah, he's just a really unique person that, um, you know, when it comes to self editing, he doesn't do it. He, he absolutely does not self edit in front of anyone. And I've lived with him and his parents for, I, we lived with them for a total of three years. So I've seen it firsthand. Um, and, uh, I think that I learned by his example how to have difficult and honest relationships with the people that I love, specifically my parents, and to not only tell them how I feel and be able to stand as an adult, like as a sovereign adult in their presence, Hmm. but to also then accompany that with love. Hmm. And that's hard. Yeah. It's really hard. Hmm. At uh, uh, one point during the podcast, you said um, it really struck me was that the mind can really only focus on one thing at a time. And I realized for myself, one of the, my like most kind of transformative moments is when I literally shifted to focusing on one thing, which was being gentle with myself. I literally like no matter what happened throughout the day, as long as I could come back at night and be gentle with myself, I considered it a success. And that is like the one thing that really shifted my inner dialogue. And I was curious, as you said, you know, and not that I don't have moments of, you know, insecurities and shame that still come up to this day, but I have much more of a practice to being gentle with that part of myself. Um, I was wondering when did that inner dialogue kind of switch? Was it, um, kind of, I was wondering, you know, I'm part of it being Dalton being, um, you know, kind of reflecting back over and over. No, like you, you are awesome. You're a badass. Or, um, you also talked about listening to podcasts and, you know, I'm wondering what things in your life helped shift that inner dialogue of self-editing to being like, no, I'm a badass and I have the right to take up this space. Mm, Yeah. Um, Experience. Mm. And what I mean by that is, you know, Dalton coaching me and speaking life into me and making me stand in front of the mirror and look at myself in the eyes and say things like, you're beautiful. You're a badass. It's not your fault. I love you. Like he gave me tools and he encouraged me then to listen to podcasts, which then gave me more tools. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until I started to actually practice and implement these things into my actual life by doing the things that I thought I could never do that my inner dialogue started to shift. Hmm. And an example of that would be to teach those painting classes. 
like when I started to teach painting classes, I had no idea what I was doing. And these are like the the wine and sip. People call it whatever the heck they want to uh-huh. call it. But I had never taken one before. I had never seen one before. I didn't know, like I never went to school for this. And essentially I was, I was going to be publicly speaking in front of 25 strangers and then guiding them through a painting class. And I mean, I would, this was, this was still in like that transition phase. So I would get there to the restaurant. I would chug a glass of wine. I would eat a huge salad just to like fill myself up and numb my, like I was just still trying to numb. I was still scared. And I would go in a back room and I would cry and I would just, just cry and cry and cry. And I was shaking. Like, what am I doing? I have no idea how to do this. Mm. But then I would pull myself together and I would get my mind right. And I would go out there and I would teach a painting class. Mm. And I did this literally hundreds of times. And then, you know, it, it didn't take hundreds to start to make a shift. It probably took you know, after the first one, I think I had a shift. I was like, holy shit, I just did that. I Mm. just did that. And that only continued to build, you know, and that, that went into those difficult conversations with my parents, you know, one with my mom and one with my dad. And those were the hardest things ever. I didn't, um, I didn't like curate them. They just happened and they were hard. And I, I messily like, tried to find my way through them, but I came out the other side still alive and they mm. still loved me. Mm. So, I mean, I could go on and on, you know, <laughs> it, it, it was, it was any experience where I was like, I was terrified and then I survived it because I showed up and I faced my fear. That's when my mind started to go, Oh my gosh, maybe I am a badass. Maybe mm. I am you know, capable of doing these things I never thought I could do before. Yeah, I I think what I'm hearing in this is there's a real big shift in changing your life to really just doing the things that are scary, right? Shifting your life and stepping into just what's scaring the shit out of you and then seeing that you survived and you actually did a good job or decent job or getting better at it and knowing like, Oh, I am actually way stronger and have way more ability than, than I was giving myself. Yes. When, when did you start imagining a better life for yourself? Was it during those moments? Mm, Gosh. Kevin, I still struggle with this today. Um, this is probably like my my biggest struggle that I've uh, – I would say my biggest assignment over the last year has been to now step into visualizing a better life for myself. Um I wrote a blog when I was going through all of this six years ago, and in the blog I wrote – I couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. I just kept walking and hoped that it would be there. Mm. So although, you know, I, I said that listening to podcasts and things like that started to help me visualize a better life for myself, yeah. I think it was more of like a blind hope and, and, and not so much of a visualization, <laughs> if 
that makes sense. Uh-huh. And so, it, it also sounds like a little bit of just taking the next step and seeing where that leads and then taking the next step after that. Yes, um, exactly. Just do the next right thing. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering what, what tools helped you along the way? So you mentioned podcasts. Um, I also curious on how painting has, um, played a part of your life and any other tools that you utilize to, um, just help you in your day to day. Yeah. Painting, um, especially in the beginning of my journey was my main outlet for my emotions. Mm-hmm. I had always been artistic and I always knew that I was, that was always my thing. Like that was the one thing I guess I did have confidence in was my ability to draw and paint. Mm-hmm. But when I quit my job as a bartender and I had a rent to pay, I had to rely on my painting for mm-hmm. my livelihood and that, although it put some unhealthy pressure on me where I was like really, um, you know, I was withdrawing, withdrawing from all these drugs and all these things that I literally let go of within like a week's time. Like all of that happened within a week of like quit my job, sell my car, um, throw away my, my makeup, flush my pills down the toilet, like everything. I just mm-hmm. went cold turkey. Um, and then I decided I was going to be a full-time artist. So that was a little messy, but I showed up, you know, with the help of Dalton coaching me into it, I showed up every day in my studio and that was where I, I really got to see my growth, like in a tangible form because I got better at painting. Mm. So I proved to myself that if I keep showing up, you know, maybe my mindset isn't the greatest yet, but I can improve my painting skills. Mm. So um, that was really, I think, transformative for me um, to also gain respect for myself because I had my first painting show. I had my first art show where I, I displayed a collection of my artwork and I sold paintings and I think that that was kind of me like gaining, um, regaining respect for myself after I had lost so much of it. You know, it was kind of like, okay, like, let's get your shit together and let's do something hard, mm-hmm. you know? So painting has, has been a, um, a tool for me that I've kind of let go of in the last couple of years because I transitioned into um, – my podcast and writing, which Mm -hmm. kind of just took the same form as painting Mm -hmm. for me. Yeah. Just another release and another form of self-expression. And I, I don't know, like, I think this is obviously becoming more and more um, common, but I really encourage everyone I meet to start a podcast (laughs) because like, it's just, And even if you never put it out there, you know, Mm -hmm. like just at least record one. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's a beautiful way to express yourself. Sure. Yeah. It's so cool. Yeah. And then if you, if you want to share it or, you know, leave it behind, it's like, how cool, 
that future generations, even after you're gone, can yeah. listen to your voice. Even just like having like that kind of recording of yourself and then like listening to it 20 years later or something probably be so cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like it's a verbal journal. Like yeah. it's so it's it's just unique. And we've never had, you know, the abilities that we have now. It's just continuously growing. So um yeah, I mean anyone listening like even if you don't if you're like ah, I would never do that it's like well then just record a voice memo in your phone when you're feeling frustrated you know like just get it out it's it's really therapeutic and um the last thing I wanted to add well actually two things that have been really helpful for me um one that's been part of this whole thing for six years and it sounds so like stupid simple but it is going for walks outside by myself Mm -hmm. Mm. just a walk it's not a workout it's not a run it's not yoga it's not pilates it's just walking outside by myself sounds like your your meditation yes yes absolutely and um so then the actual last thing is another form of meditation, which is movement, like dance, ecstatic Mm. dance. Mm. And this is something I'm really excited to really like dive into this year. And um, actually, Sheila and I are hosting a workshop together at the end of this month for women to come ecstatic dance with us. (laughs) So rad. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So, but you can do that at home by yourself. (laughs) Or go to the workshop. Do it in community. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, I think kind of those last two tools in my mind are, I mean, all the tools are really important, but I think there, there is like a, a body and mind piece that I think it's important to move out kind of stuck energy, which I hear like through the dancing and then also times to be a little bit stiller with yourself, which I heard through like the kind of the walking, Mm -hmm. um, which just strikes me out as like two really important tools um i wonder what you wish for yourself in the future or where would you like to see yourself or not see yourself um what comes to mind Mm. um you know although i say i've struggled with that visualization piece i think very recently, in the last couple of months, I've started to get glimpses of what I do want my future to look like, which is really exciting. Um, and I know the elements that I want to be in that vision are um, travel, freedom, which might also include me not having a home for a while. Um, I see potential, uh, parenthood, maybe having children in the future, which I really resisted for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily Dalton and I are on the same page with that because we've both kind of gone through our own like resistance mm-hmm. to it. But the more we become comfortable in our own lives and our own ability to kind of take care of ourselves, then that becomes an option, Mm -hmm. right? Then you can consider it. Um, I 
want, well, I will have a, a gray French bulldog named Rex. Have. I talk about Already him a named lot. Rex. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he comes on my walks with me. <laughs> um, so he'll be coming around in the next couple of years, I think. Yeah, and honestly, aside from that, like I, I don't have any specific goals for myself. I just have this feeling of expansion mm. that I want to continue stepping Beautiful. into. Um, yeah. So we have three last questions. I have really enjoyed this interview or this interview process with you. Um, but Me our too. last three questions are, um, let's see. The first one is, which I think you already kind of touched in on, but um, who are you grateful for? Hmm. I'm going to throw a curveball here. I like that. (laughs) Because we've heard a lot um, of my story, but I am really grateful for Hmm. Sheila. And I say that because I just, I never knew I could have um, a new adult female friend (laughs) that is on this path uh, with me. Hmm. And I literally asked, it's crazy how it happened. I asked the universe like out loud. I said, please send me like genuine conscious female friendships, please. And I kid you not, the next day in my inbox was a short novel from Sheila (laughs) for the first time ever. (laughs) Yes. And uh, yeah, ever since then, um, you know, we just, we don't need to meet up all the time and we don't need to be in constant contact. We just support each other and each other's expansion and growth. And that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. It's, it's really nice to have someone that you're moving just forward with, you know, you don't necessarily need to be, um, in connection, but just knowing that, that there's someone who's on the same path in a way and, and, and is supportive of you kind of having that, that fellow tribe member to, to walk with in a way. Um, next question is what is a favorite book to recommend? It could be fiction, nonfiction. It can be anything you want. Um, yeah. What, what comes up for Mm -hmm. that? Um, A book by Michael A. Singer called The Surrender Experiment. Mm. And he wrote The Untethered Soul, which is much more Mm -hmm. famous and well-known, which I've also read, and that was great as well. But I read The Surrender Experiment, and it's like a book you can't put down because he's actually telling a story of his life. Yeah. And um, I mean... It was just like mind blowing the power. Like it makes you believe in magic. If that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Like the magic of trusting your life and the fact that everything's falling into place exactly as it should. And I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a feeling better than trusting that everything is exactly as Mm. it should be. That sounds so good. (laughs) I'm going to definitely have to Mm. read that one. (laughs) Um, Awesome. So our very last question is, 
if you could look someone in the eye who is experiencing similar hardships that you did, um, what would you tell them? Hmm. Ah, I think I would, I would tell them to keep moving forward because inevitably, as long as they keep showing up, they will get stronger. Hmm. And that not only will they get through what they're going through, but it's happening for them so that they can become the person that they're meant to be. Well, thank you very much. Um, I want to shout out to everything that you're doing. So if I miss a piece, please add it in. Um, but you also have an amazing podcast com called Coming Clean with Kylie Lewis. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. And that's yep. honestly where I heard of Sheila's story. And um, I just absolutely love all the interviews and all the different topics that you cover. Um, it's so awesome. And you you and your guests have a way of articulating yourself that um, is really just so clear and inspirational in a sense. And also your blog and I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about this at all yet, but this manifesto that you're creating or created is coming out. Um, but your writing is so clear and draws me in as well. Um, and it was also like, like I read on your website, um, KylieMLewis.com of kind of your story. You have like a my story part one, part two, and also so many other things. But there's so much. Um, the way you storytell is it's it just draws draws me into your experience, and it feels so connectable and relationable. And you have such a way with words and sharing your experience that I think um, other people can really relate to and not feel so alone and feel almost just like really connected with you just through the words that you've put down. So I think it's an awesome thing to go check out. Um, is there anything else that you're doing that you'd like to share about yourself? I just want to say thank you. That was so kind. <laughs> yeah. Like at first I noticed my body language as you were saying that and I was like getting smaller. I'm like, Oh no. <laughs> and I'm like, I had to literally like open myself up, like expand my mm. chest and my heart space to receive that. You're so a badass you. writer. <laughs> thank you. Yay. <laughs> thank you. Yes, I am. Uh, yeah. So really that's the last cool. thing is that um, I'll be, I'll be launching my book in uh, the spring of, two th of, of 2020. Yeah. Awesome. This year. So my book is called Coming Clean, and it's a memoir mixed with very tangible tools to help yourself kind of get through or continue your own journey. So awesome. Um, so we'll have all of that posted on the website for your page for people to just very easily click and check out. Um, so cool. Yeah. Thank you very much for being here, being a part of this process and sharing your story. Um, that can 
helped touch so many. So thank you. Thank you. It was my pleasure, Kevin. Thank you, everybody, for joining, for being a part of this podcast, listening all the way through. Um, It means everything to have your support to know that these stories are touching you, that they're making a difference, um, and that you feel impacted by listening to other stories. Um, Again, connect in with us. We love, we love, we love to hear from you. Let us know if you have a good, bad, surprise, interesting dating story so we can showcase it on our next episode or I think it'll be the next episode. We'll see when it comes out. We'll see when that episode gets released. But um, it is coming soon. I promise. It is on its way. It is manifesting. <laughs> but uh, yeah, check it out. Send us your stories. Um, from my heart to yours, I hope this this week is just amazing. These next two weeks until our next episode. Um, remember, always be gentle with your heart. Take care.